So on this Christmas Day 2019, I would like to speak on the topic of the non-negotiable Christmas. Uh, different, different passages we're going to look at. And our main text comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. We do live in an age and in a part of the world where many things, it seems, are negotiable or relative to each and every individual. It seems that the once upon a time when we used to live by a set of certain standards and values that uh, held, a, a, that sort of sustained society, a lot of those values are getting challenged. A lot of the pillars that held society up are being torn down. So we do have a lot of benefits, obviously. We don't, we don't have a regime above us, a military or a dictatorship that tells us where we are to live and where we are to go and what we are to do. We do enjoy privileges and freedoms that I would say two-thirds of our world, that's about five billion people, don't get to have. I was very much made aware of this in my recent visit to Southeast Asia. What we all agree on is that we all want a certain level of peace and ease and comfort. This, of course, is not the way it is for most of the people in our world. And it hasn't been the case in history as well. Now, the background to the Christmas story bears this out quite clearly. And unless we, we try and explain some of the background, it, it, it's sort of it's removed from us that we just cannot relate to it. So let me, under four headings, we're going to look at some of these things. First of all, God's truth is not open to our interpretation. God's truth is not open to our interpretation. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, from the New American Standard Bible, this is what it says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished, uh, and another, another way to look at all these things accomplished is to say on which there is full conviction, there is full agreement that this is actually what happened among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Can you see how carefully Dr. Luke investigated the story, spoke to eyewitnesses, he did his research. He didn't just rely on hearsay. He, if somebody said something, he went and confirmed it with somebody else and this is exactly the way it happened. What's the purpose? So that you may know the exact truth. Now Luke and Matthew start their Gospels differently, but ultimately 
Both of them are telling the story, the same story, from different angles, with different details. In other words, there is one story, but told differently through different eyes. And there is a lot at stake when it comes to the Gospel. Therefore, truth is of utmost importance. When you or I tell stories, we tend to be a little more loose with the truth. Uh, When I go hunting or I go fishing, I tend to be a little bit more loose with the truth. Um, For example, if I'm... I might tell the story this way. I will say, uh, I was out fishing about 20 kilometres out to sea in a four-metre swell when I hooked up a 10-pound kingfish. And it was fighting. I was there fighting with it for a long, long time. In reality, in reality, it was just outside the heads in a one-metre swell and the fish was barely legal in size. (laughs) But... Who is going to deny my story unless there's somebody else with me that right there, okay? So I can, I can make it, uh, I can stretch the truth as much as I want, really. But Luke is a lot more careful than that. He's sure to mention his research from actual witnesses, his careful examination of stories, historical evidence. He's not given to wild exaggerations or simply fairy tales. It is, it is reality, not open to interpretations or feelings about how it happens or stuff that he agreed with or disagreed with. That's irrelevant. He has to tell the truth. He just told it like it is without taking into account whether the story might comfort some or offend others. Truth is a statement of fact. It doesn't care about feelings. If you go to the doctor, you want him to tell you the truth, don't you? Come on, doc, just tell, me, tell it to me straight. I can't, really. I, I, I can't tell you the truth. It's going to hurt you. Well, that's not the way it works. Now, it saddens me that so much of God's truth is now subject to our interpretation. Worse still, it is not something that you choose to believe or not simply because it is hard to believe. Like Luke, we also cannot muck around with God's truth. Any slight deviation from truth is no longer the exact truth which Luke was writing to Theophilus. We can, of course, strip it of the story from supernatural elements, which has, has been going on for a while now, and, and read it simply, read simply the story as a baby born in humble conditions who grew up to be a good teacher. And he said a lot of good things. Is that where we leave Jesus? And this is how most in our world would see the Christmas story. Or we can read it in its totality that there is a God, creator of the heavens and the earth, who, because of his love for us, broke into our world of sin to be born, to live, to die, 
and to rise again so that by believing in him we can be forgiven for our sins. Therefore, if what is contained in these words is truth, then it has some really serious implications for every person. We are accountable to how we respond to this truth, both now and one day before his throne. This is the truth. Secondly, God's command is not open for discussion. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call his name Jesus. That's from Luke chapter 2, verses 30 to 31. Now, as a young couple, Mary and Joseph had plans of what they were going to do with their lives, just like the rest of us have plans. Did you notice that God didn't ask Mary and Joseph for their cooperation or even their opinion, for that matter, on how they felt about the idea? I cannot find any passages where the angel announcing God's plan asked Mary or Joseph if this is acceptable to them. Is this okay with you? Please sign on the dotted line. Just we have evidence that you've actually agreed to these conditions. God simply told them what was going to happen and what they were going to do about it. And they didn't even have to spend time choosing, you know, wondering, what are we going to call him? This is the name, Jesus. What, you don't even get to choose a name for your son? No. How many of you are doing what you plan on doing when you were in high school? How did, how did that work out? You know? How many, how many of you were going to be firemen or, or astronauts or nuclear physicists? Maybe for some of you, your, your plans and your dreams worked out pretty well. But somewhere along the line, for some of us, we had to accept reality and say, well, there goes that. And there goes that. But don't tell your kids because we don't want to shatter their dreams. They have to dream big, okay? Somewhere along the line, reality is going to hit you. And ultimately, unless God blesses your plans, God's going to do what God's going to do. And his sovereignty, his will, will prevail every time. Now, I'm sorry that doesn't, that doesn't make you feel good, but that's what happened with me. I was going to be in construction. I was going to be a builder. I was going to be, you know, into big project management, you know. I don't know, bridge building, right? Towers and all of this. That was my dream. My father was a pastor. Definitely didn't want to be a pastor, I knew how hard it was. Yeah. And just after one year after marriage, it all sort of changed. How did your dreams work out? I can tell you how Joseph and Mary's dream worked out. Some of the plans 
we have made have changed because we have changed our decisions, our desires, our priorities. Suddenly we discover that there are more important things in life. But other things have changed because of circumstances beyond our control. could be our health, could be our family's circumstances. And this is all part of God's doing. Nothing escapes his eternal plan. While uh, I was recently in Myanmar, um, Ted kept reminding me, he said, uh, now this is the plan, this is the schedule, but it can change, all right? So don't get too frustrated. And he kept repeating that to me because I kept checking with him, well, what are we doing this time? But, okay, this is the plan up until now, but it can change, all right? Just, in, uh, in Africa they have a saying, TIA, and this is Africa, they say. So just whatever happens, get used to it, all right? Just put up with it. Don't get frustrated. TIA. And I suppose we could say here in Australia, we could say TIL, this is life. This is life. God has a plan for our lives. In fact, the Bible tells us that he made that plan before he created the world. And he has no intention of asking your permission to proceed with his plan. Now, you can choose not to obey his will, to fight it, like Jonah and and others, and try and do your own thing, but you cannot change his perfect will for your life. The thing is, we need to discover that and move with that, rather than present our plans and schedules before God and say, well, God, I want you to sign off on this. It doesn't work like that. God's plans are not disposed to our convenience. God's plans are not disposed to our convenience. Let me read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 again. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. As she gave birth to her firstborn son, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Sometimes we think that if we are, in fact, in God's plan, in God's will, everything is just going to work out absolutely fine. It's going to be a bed of roses and life will be hunky-dory. No, that was not the case for countless servants of God in the Bible. It's not the case for so many Christians throughout the ages. Certainly not the case for Joseph and Mary. Consider the following. Firstly, why didn't the sovereign God make the emperor Caesar Augustus? This is, we're talking the empire, the biggest empire that the world has ever known, the Roman Empire. 
Why, if God is above Caesar Augustus, why didn't the sovereign God make Caesar Augustus declare that tax collection and the census either before Joseph and Mary were married or after the baby was born? I mean, really? He could have done that, couldn't he? I mean, having a woman who was so pregnant that she was barely, you know, able to get to, to Bethlehem, travel by foot, by donkey, would have been difficult. God, didn't you think about that? Really? Do you know how far it was from Nazareth to Bethlehem? 90 miles. From here to Newcastle. Okay? How many pregnant ladies will put their hand up and say, yep, I'm in for that. I've got to put my name for the census because we've got to pay our taxes. Yeah. That's not very convenient. Sorry. Not going. You go. You know, just tick my name off. God's own... God was going to send his son into the world. Couldn't he make it more convenient, more comfortable? His own son. Instead, God has Augustus declare a census of the entire Roman Empire. And Augustus thinks that it's about raising taxes because in the territories that they conquered, they needed to have a an idea of how many people they conquered because they wanted every person to pay a tax so that the Roman Empire could continue expanding, could continue to pay for their military bill and so they needed to raise taxes. That was the whole reason for the census. So Augustus thinks it's all about money and taxes but God does it so that his son would be born in a specific tin pot little town called Bethlehem. Who does that? He changed, he, he, he redirects the, the, the fate of the whole empire so that one particular prophecy could be fulfilled, moving from here to there. And you're going to unsettle the whole empire? Who does that? Well, God does that. God does that. Last week I told you the story of one particular pastor who spent time in jail because um, he was taking Bibles into China. And uh, that's pretty inconvenient, isn't it? Spending time in jail because you're served on God. And, and guess what? While he's in jail, people are getting converted. This guy gets converted. Now, can God actually put somebody in jail so that people inside jail can get converted? Could, could God actually change your circumstances so dramatically that you are so lost, I don't know what's going on, could God actually use that circumstance because he wants to save one particular person through you? Can he do that? Yeah, he can. This is the way that God's plans work.
Secondly, the baby was born in a manger because there was no room in the inn. Again, you can picture the couple's frustration. Really? Joseph? I thought you booked it, right? What about Airbnb? Have you tried that? Huh? Hotel.com? You know? I thought you booked ahead. What happened? Oh, I'm sorry, darling, okay? Just slipped my mind. God could have made the booking. Didn't. Mary's exhausted after 150 k's, ready to deliver. Can't find a comfortable place anywhere. No clean sheets. Nowhere. And God is your sovereign father? Really? How's that working out? I thought he's supposed to be looking after you. He's not making it any easier, is he? Are you sure he loves you? Really? Even though, my friends, even though you might be in the centre of God's will for your life, things can get really, really, really messy. I'm telling you. Just read history. Just read the scriptures. And thirdly, they were forced to flee to Egypt. It was, and, and it, and again, it was the threat of this jealous King Herod. And we can see the hand of God at work because he warned them of the danger so that God warned them so that they could flee. Well, why didn't God just make the king's heart soften so they wouldn't have to flee at all? Why didn't he just make Herod forget about this whole baby thing? What's more, infant boys, two years old and younger, killed by these murderous, murderous henchmen. So Jesus would have been about two years old, left everything, left their home and going again to Egypt. Who do we know in Egypt, guys? Oh, Auntie May, you know, she's got some friends in Egypt. Can we stay with them? Nothing. Nothing. Displaced, refugees, moved out of their comfort zone. Lord, I thought you cared. How did he care? He warned them. That was it. And fourthly, somewhere between the time when Joseph took his family back to Nazareth and when Jesus became 30 years old, somewhere in that period, somewhere between the age of 12 and the age of 30, Joseph dies. We don't hear about him anymore. You can imagine those birthday celebrations. So if you want to know when did Christmas start, let's imagine that uh, they had Jesus' birthday celebrations around that time. And suddenly Joseph was no longer there when they celebrated Jesus' birthday. There was a vacant chair at the table. Now Jesus is the oldest son. He becomes the head of the home taking care of his siblings, his mother, half-brothers. And then he leaves home to start ministry. 
Now some of you, obviously, you will need to resume your responsibilities in life. It usually happens when you get married and you move on. Jesus left home to follow God's will, a pathway that in three and a half years will take him to the cross. And it wasn't perhaps the pathway that the rest of the family had worked out for the eldest son. And sometimes the the way that we picture happiness is not from the Bible, it's not from Scripture. It's because the Bible talks about carrying a cross. And Jesus spoke about the choices that we make. He spoke about the broad and easy way, the broad road, the wide road that almost everybody takes, the road that leads to destruction. But he also spoke about the the narrow road, the more difficult way, the one that not many people want to take. That is the way that leads to eternal life. Which way are you going to choose? Well, obviously the natural choice is whatever's easier, right? That's what we want for, for our kids, for our family, for ourselves. Jesus could have had an easier life if he just simply... Stay at home. Don't ruffle any feathers. Fulfill your duty at home, mate. Everything's fine. Except he wouldn't be obedient to the Father, would he? And when we choose the way that looks the easiest, we aren't necessarily choosing the way that is the will of God. Jesus chose a path that would lead him to the cross. The Apostle Paul chose a path that led him to imprisonment, torture, execution, and so on and so forth. Both chose paths that were in God's plan for them. They did not choose the easy road. So God doesn't promise any of us an easy trip. What he does promise is to be with us. And that is where the name Emmanuel, God with us, that's where it comes from, God with us in every circumstance. And lastly, God's blessings is not open to our assessment. God's blessing not open to our assessment. Now, when it comes to blessings, uh, we tend to be a lot more subjective, I think, in our assessment of how good or how bad we've got it. Uh, A blessing is is obviously uh, God's favour upon your life. Problem is that God's favour on my life might display itself with me having barely two coins to rub each other, right? That's how God's favour might display itself in my life. Until I look over the fence and see that you got that many coins in your backyard, you don't know, you don't know what to do with it. And the moment I start to compare my blessings to yours or you start comparing your blessings to mine, we're going to start having problems. Instead of being contented, we become discontented. And you and I are blessed without even knowing it and therefore if we don't know it, we're not thankful for it, we don't even acknowledge it. That is why we find it easier to complain than to be thankful. 
We're coming to the end of the year. Only one week to go. As you look back, are you thankful? Are you disappointed? What are you? In my recent trip, I didn't hear too many complaints about the weather, about the food, or about the electricity that kept on shutting down. And therefore, air conditioning and everything else. People just get on with life. I didn't hear too many people complain about the fact that there was rice for breakfast, there is rice for lunch, and there is rice for dinner. There's rice, there's rice, and there's rice. Is there anything else in the menu, Ted? I thought, no, there's rice. (laughs) But unless you understand that 90-95% of your income is spent on food, you're going to be very thankful to God for the very fact that you got rice. And anything that goes on top is, is a blessing, isn't it? We're all going to have our lunches today. We're going to get to choose and pick. Oh, I want that, a little bit of that, and so on and so forth. That's not available to two-thirds of the world, is it? Again, let me ask you the question, what are you thankful for? When you give thanks for the dinner, for lunch, for the breakfast, are you truly thankful from the heart for the fact that you have food in front of you? It will make a difference in your life when you see the blessings through God's eyes. And don't even look over the fence and see how your, your, your brother or sister are doing. Just look up and give thanks to God for what you have. Now Mary and Joseph obviously witnessed up close and personal what it was like to have God physically in your family. It must have been somewhat unsettling, I must admit. No one before, no one since will be able to say the same. We had God living physically in our home. And even though it must have been a joy beyond belief to raise Jesus, the perfect son, as he grew up, I'm not sure they fully understood the implications of his mission. Despite the promises of God to Mary and Joseph at his birth, Mary and her kids would struggle for a while to accept Jesus' messianic call. They thought he was mad, he was crazy, he'd gone tropo for a while. Look at these verses, however, of the blessing that this child was to the family. It all comes, all these verses come from Luke chapter 2, verse 33. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Verse 40, and the child grew and became strong and he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. And then, why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand that what he was saying to them. And then he went to Nazareth with them and what? He was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. In verse 52, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man.
That was the trajectory. Ultimately, the Jesus who was born in a tin pot little town grew up to be a blessing to the whole world. But it was through pain. It was through the piercing of Mary's heart as she witnessed this child grow and then the suffering and death, the torture before the cross. There is no easy way to victory for any of us and not for the Son of God. So you can imagine the blessing that Mary must have witnessed when her firstborn son Jesus rose victorious over death, over the grave. Her son not only became her saviour, her personal saviour, but the saviour of the world as well. What a privilege. What an amazing privilege. So what is your plan? Have you got plans for next year and the year after? Maybe you need to seek God's plan for your life rather than ask God to sign off on your plans. And God's plan for our lives isn't always an easy one, but it is a plan that will lead to our being a blessing to many. And no, there's no guarantee that any of us will be here next year, this time. And it's not about the number of years in our lives, but as they say, the the amount of life in those years. And even if his plan is an early death for us, be assured that he wants to use us in some very significant way to bring glory to his name, either in life or in death. So that others can also come to a knowledge of the truth. And if we agree to follow God's plan, no matter how difficult, we will only find in eternity the ultimate measure of what our life has been while we were on earth. May God bless you guys. Have a blessed Christmas. May you rejoice with friends and loved ones. Measure your life through God's eyes. And may he truly bless you to do his will. Amen.